You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty. Oh, to stimulate your thinking. You're listening. You're listening to Intellectual Erection. Intellectual, intellectual, intellectual Erection. Welcome back to Intellectual Erection. I'm your host, Patrick. And today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Well, the audience went nuts. You're blaming the victim. I said, no, I'm not. I'm pointing out something that is a result of surviving a trauma that if you don't do something about is going to put you in harm's way in the future. Dr. Bisbee deals with a lot of trauma patients that have experienced PTSD, some of which are due to sexual violence. So there is a lot of talk about sexual violence in this episode. And we also talk about her work in general with the sex positive communities through therapy and intimacy coaching. We touch on topics of restorative justice, and cancel culture. Before we get on to the episode, I do have more exciting news to share with you. Last week, I talked to you about the launch of my art page for Fine Art Prints. It's been up and running for a little while, so please go on there, have a look, and support my work if you can in any way. Buy a print or share my work online. Help spread the visibility. Comment, like, follow, all the things that helps a little business grow. I sourced the best possible paper that I could find for these prints and I put a lot of effort behind the scenes into getting this started so that these prints come out as beautiful as possible. The other big news you can find on my intellectual.erection page, you can see in my bio there that I've begun to offer one-on-one consultations for anybody who's interested in the ethics of kink, polyamory, and DS relationships. We can discuss how to approach beginning these things in your existing relationships and we can discuss if you have any issues surrounding ethics or just in general if you're having some difficulties with polyamory kink or bdsm and ds relationships in general i do have a lot of experience and background in this i've been doing this podcast for the last three years and being deeply invested in the sex positive communities running workshops at sex clubs i've done lectures at universities And I've been teaching for the past six years post-secondary courses in psychology, communications, and philosophy. So my role in this is explicitly as an educator and for consultations, not for therapy, and not as a life coach. I don't do those things. I'm not qualified to do them. And I would never presume to posit myself as someone who's out there offering help in any way, shape, or form geared towards one's mental health. I am an educator, and that is what I can offer. Please send me a message on Instagram at intellectual.erection or email me at intellectualerection at gmail.com if you want to set up a consult with me. And as always, listen, subscribe, review, and most of all, enjoy. I'm sitting here today with... Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Hi, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be Uh, here. The first thing I'm going to ask is basically for you to just introduce yourself. Tell the listeners what it is that you do. So I am a psychologist, a sex and intimacy coach, a podcaster, speaker, and author. And I spend most of my time helping people to create and maintain meaningful relationships 
that contains sizzling sex and get rid of any shame around that. That's like my big thing. Wow. Um, I work a lot with um, gender, sex, and relationship diversity, which means I work a lot with people who are LGBTQ or they're in consensually non-monogamous relationships, so they might be polyamorous or they're kinky. I do work with people who are heteronormative, but I have a very large clientele who are not. Wow. Okay. And you are based out of? Well, I'm in the UK, um, but you know, I do everything online. And um, when the world opens back up properly, I travel to the US every couple of months. It sounds like you are doing exactly what a lot of millennials are doing, which is having a million jobs and uh, yeah. yeah, exhausting all of your time in all of different places. You said just as you logged in today with me that you just came from back-to-back -back meetings and after this you have back-to-back -back more. So good luck on, on keeping your energy up. <laughs> Thanks. And I'm not anywhere near a millennial. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't want to presume, but. No, I'm 57. So I'm, I'm quite happy to tell people how old I am. One of the reasons I'm happy to tell people how old I am is a lot of people think that sex and intimacy are a thing of the past by the time you reach my age. And they're just not. So Awesome. Okay. Well, then we're going to get to the first thing that I always ask my guests, which is the origin question. Now you can choose not to answer the first part of the origin question, but I like to get a little bit Freudian and ask if you have a first root memory of sex or sexuality. The first time that you encountered it in the world and wondered, what is this thing? I'm always curious what that experience is for people. Um, okay. So I have one really early memory. Um, I must have been around six of having my teddy bear between my legs. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how many people realize that um, we're sexual beings from in the womb. And if you have children, then you probably notice when you've got a toddler, they discover themselves and they will play with themselves all the time because it feels good. They won't have memory of that, but that, you, that often continues on. So my, you know, my first memory is really of, of, of using the teddy bear rubbing against the teddy bear because it felt nice. You are not the first person on this podcast to have had a similar claim. I've heard of several different people either using furniture or teddy bears or toys or whatever to kind of just rub themselves on it because it felt good. And yeah. the healthier parents in that group of, of humans were allowing of those practices and just said, you know, maybe don't do that at kindergarten, but it's okay to do it at home. <laughs> That's a specific throwback to to an episode I did with uh, with a friend called uh, Kit, and they called it crawling. <laughs> <laughs> so the second part of the origin question then is how did you get involved with the sex positive communities, by which I mean kink, BDSM, fetish, polyamory, sex work, and in your case, obviously sex coaching um, and all that. So um, my earliest real sexual memories, so where I was having desires, were all offbeat. And um, my, even in my early sexual experience, I liked being pushed around and I liked being dominated. And I knew that was different and I didn't really know what to do with that. I was talking with somebody um, at an event recently and said that I, one of the things that I remembered uh, doing was being 10 and actually talking to one of my girlfriends, you know, you, but just like boys explore with um, masturbation, girls explore sometimes not always to the same extent. 
Um, but I remember talking this girl into sitting on my face. Um, and she oh. was, and she was dressed, right? But that was what I wanted to try. And I wanted to try the experience of feeling somewhat smothered, I guess, right? I just remember it being really hot. And um, I, I think I was nine or 10. So that's where I was. Now in my day, there wasn't an easy access into a kink or BDSM community at all. Um, you know, there was no internet. When I was in, got, went into graduate school, um, then there was an internet. So that's how you met people. So you just kind of took your chances in the world and in the, in, in the overall community by trying to express what you wanted and you fell into various things. And when I was 19, I um, met somebody who I thought was gonna be everything I'd been looking for. Cause by that point I was looking for a master. I was well aware that that's what I wanted. Um, unfortunately, well, the first two weeks were fab. The first two weeks were great. I got, had some experiences I'd been dying to have. They were wonderful. Everything was consensual, but after two weeks, he became a monster. And so there was a five day period where I was captive and he just abused the shit out of me and raped me repeatedly. And, and finally choked me to the point where I was gone. I was dead. And um, he then, I came to with him giving me mouth to mouth and pounding on my chest. So that was pretty intense, yeah. As a result of that, I got PTSD. So I stopped doing some of this stuff for a while. I was really traumatized. The next relationship that I had within this was a reparative relationship, and it was with somebody who also had PTSD who was dominant. And so we did a lot of stuff together, but I had shame around my desires for years after that. And I actually had to do lots of different things in order to deal with the shame. I found a way to deal with the symptoms and get rid of the symptoms much more easily. And even that took seven years, but actually being able to just be who I was sexually took over 20 years. Wow. So that sounds like a very intense kind of journey through, it's hard to even say sex positive communities because in your case, it wasn't extremely positive, Nope. but it seems like this was the catalyst for you being able to do what you're doing today, which is helping Absolutely. other people through who have had maybe similar experiences get through it, which is, it sounds to me like a very daunting task. Well, for me, so I do two things. I do have a trauma specialty and I do treat people for PTSD and we get rid of their symptoms and they move from not into survivor, but actually back into life so that the trauma is, is no longer live. But even doing that doesn't necessarily, if it's been sexual violence, help somebody recreate a decent sex life or, or if they've got kinky desires or unusual desires, own those and not feel shame. That is really part of the coaching part of my business. And that's deliberate because I went through all sorts of things to be able to do that, to be able to get to a place where I now have two, I, I live in power exchange relationships. So I have two full-time masters, one I live with and I'm married to, one I don't live with, but it was also in the country and um, they work together. And then I've got a couple of other consensual poly relationships, but all of my relationships have a power exchange because that's what gets me off. That's what you enjoy. Yeah. And I'm really comfortable with that now. And, you know, I've written an erotic memoir and I talk about my fantasies and I do an erotica podcast where I will, you know, read the erotica I like 
So I'm cool with that now, but that took a long time. But with my coaching clients, I now have a system that cuts that time down because it didn't exist when I was trying to do it. And, you know, a lot of people are involved in communities, but there are a lot of people who don't want to be part of a community. I am. Um, I identify as leather, but there are a lot of people who don't want to be part of a community. They just want to meet the right partner or partners. So I help those folks too. Awesome. Well, there's going to be, I have a lot of questions regarding that. The first thing I actually want to ask you right now, just as you went on talking a little bit about your background is I'm thinking, you know, when I published this episode, because we got into discussing immediately, you know, sexual assault and rape, the idea is turning around, should I put a content warning? And I always have a difficulty with that because, you know, content warnings seem like the ethical thing to do, but then the research shows that it actually doesn't do much in the way of helping people cope with trauma. And in fact, it could be triggering just to have the content warning placed on top of the content. It seems to suggest in the research that the content warning itself does the job of being the trigger. So I wonder if you have any suggestions for that and any experience with it. It's really difficult because I talk frankly about my own past experience because as you might imagine, I often get answered, get asked the question, what brought you into this? Um, And so, you know, I can't answer that question without telling that story. It would be disingenuous. Absolutely. I mean, it's written in your bio. I did a little bit of research. So I found it very engaging and brave that you would have that posted in there, which means in my mind that you've done a lot of work to kind of own those experiences and get through it. And clearly you're doing it to help other people. So, okay. I was on another podcast that that published a a big content warning um, because they felt they needed to. Sometimes I do think that's triggering for people. Sometimes, unfortunately, what I think happens is that when you post a content warning, there are people who won't listen to the episode that actually really need to hear it. Like that is a very difficult piece to listen to. But when you listen to me and you listen to me talk about how happy I am in my relationships, you know, I don't have any symptoms. I am out in the world creating an amazing life and my life has been amazing for some time. That's actually really positive for somebody who's gone through sexual violence to hear because many of them don't feel they're ever going to be able to get there. So I'm always in two minds as to whether a content warning is the right thing to do. I know that in my own field, ethically, people would say, yes, of course you should do that. But that's kind of a new thing. I mean, usually if there's something like this in in an episode, and this isn't the first time that I've talked to somebody who survived sexual assault and rape, I'll generally put it in the description. I won't write necessarily content warning, but it'll be clearly described there. Here's what we're talking about. And then in the introduction to the episode, the listener will hear, well, we're going to be talking about this. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully. And I actually think that's enough. I don't think you actually need to say content warning. When I do episodes about sexual violence, I just put, and we cover sexual violence in this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then let's get into it a little bit. The first thing that I'm going to ask you is about your intimacy coaching, which is what do you do as an intimacy coach? I help people to A, figure out what they like. And we do it via talking and exercises. This is, a, this is not a hands-on practice. There are sex workers who do that, and that's grand. And sometimes I do refer people to sex workers because that's what they need. Um, But I help people to figure out, A, what they desire in in case they don't know, and lots don't. Um, If they do know, get rid of shame. Um, And then B, figure out how to get what they want. So how to find the partner, where to engage to actually meet somebody, and how to risk assess the people they meet, 
how to talk to people, if they're already in relationships about what they want. Um, sometimes I'm talking, working with couples to help them spice their lives up. Um, how do they engage with erotica? Where can they find erotica? How do they find new activities? Other times I'm working with people who are um, opening up their relationships. So they're wanting to step into consensual non-monogamy and we work on that. So I've got, you know, a very standard bit of work I do with people on creating a good poly agreement and what that might look like. Um, work with people about um, energy play and other various interesting sexual things that you can do. I do a lot of education, a lot of psychoeducation on just about every fetish known to man, a lot of normalization. And obviously because I actually live in power exchange relationship full time and have been poly for successfully poly for a very long time. I do a lot of work with people on relationships of this type or if they think they're interested how they engage and what they do and how they can engage in the community. And so a lot of work on consent and things like that. And how does your intimacy coaching intersect with your um, status as a psychologist? Do these things interplay or are those separate sort of entities that you exercise in different they ways? Interplay. I, I don't think, you know, I think anybody who says that they don't interplay is lying. Um, I think when you have both sets of skills that somebody comes to you and they present you with X and you decide what the best set of skills to work with them are. Um, there are people that are pure coaching clients for me. You know, there's no, no therapy part. It's therapeutic, but there's no therapy part. There are people who start and I know that they're just going to be therapy clients for me. They've got stuff that they need to deal with. I think because I do a lot of trauma work that is, um, boundaried, that it's actually easier for someone to transition from doing trauma work with me to doing the coaching thing with me. Because I'm not doing, in most cases, long-term analytic therapy or psychodynamic therapy where, you know, things like counter-transference and transference are one of the main vehicles of working with people. You still have to be aware of these things, but you deal with them directly when you're not working in that way. It's an indirect dealing with them when you are working in that way. That creates a power imbalance that makes it hard to move into a coaching relationship. Whereas the kinds of work I tend to do don't. So then do you see, I, what I'm hearing actually is that you see both strictly coaching clients and strictly psychology clients, if you will. And sometimes one will transition to the other. Or sometimes one will need some, like the most common scenario is I get a coaching client and we're working on stuff and I find out that they've got a trauma in their background. And I realize as we're working that the trauma is still alive. And so we'll take and we'll talk about the fact that we could do a number of sessions to deal with the trauma and this, and I'll go through the method of how I work with them and exactly what the expectations would be. And then we might say, okay, we're going to do that. And we'll go do that as a separate piece of work and then come back to the coaching afterwards. So when there are sort of intersections between the two, what sort of psychological principles or therapeutic techniques enter the coaching side of things? So I'm quite clear. Um, I use um, traumatic incident reduction and EMDR and sometimes prolonged exposure. Those are the three methods that I tend to use when I'm working with people on trauma. Um, and there are various satellite methods that go with each method. You know, it's the same idea, but you're not working on the incident, you're working on thematic stuff. So those are the things that I tend to use. And 
they're all methods that involve a degree of exposure. There's no way out but through is what I've always told people. You cannot resolve a trauma without ever looking at it. You may not have to talk about it in detail, but actually most of the people who talk about it in detail do better. And I've done research on this, so I feel quite okay saying this. My PhD dissertation was a treatment outcome study um, on PTSD in crime victims. And then I did some research while I was at the London Underground that compared EMDR to traumatic incident reduction to prolonged exposure. So is prolonged and, exposure something like flooding? Yeah, only okay. they do it in a, in a nicer, I would have called it direct therapeutic exposure and flooding. And I find it really amusing because it's a really hot new treatment. It's not hot. It's the oldest <laughs> treatment there is. Yeah. It's a very good treatment, but it's been around for donkey's years. Um, so for me, what I found in my research was that all of them work. Some of them work better for some people than others. And that's a kind of, you need to know your client in order to pick, but all of them work and um, they all work far better than a control group. They also all work better than any kind of a long-term non-directive therapy or a psychoanalytic therapy for dealing specifically with trauma. So that's, so they all have a, an exposure element and they all aim to get people to des desensitize and or get rid of the intense emotion, but also to come up with some new ideas about what they experience, so to reframe some things. Um, sometimes they have an element of working on behavior, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have an element of, of actually, you know, combating fixed beliefs and things like that, sometimes they don't. So they're cognitive in nature on top of the exposure. To go back a little bit to the intimacy coaching slash psychology positions that you occupy, I'm curious what your perspective is on the nature of coaching in general, because from an academic stance, there's a little bit of, you know, frowning upon people who go into coaching because of the lack of accreditation and the inability to sort of figure out which coaches would be experts in some sort of field and which wouldn't. And I mean, this was also the case for, I guess, the title of psychologist for a long time, especially here in, in Canada, right? We didn't have a college of psychologists for a while. And now that's been instituted to sort of protect the public from fraud, from people who would take on clients with no expertise and, mm -hmm. you know, begin to treat them. So given those murky sort of waters, because you're a person who occupies both positions, do you have any sort of feelings about the general nature of people who go into coaching lacking the, the sort of expertise and academic experience that you have? So one, one, needs to, one needs to realize that I was trained in America where if you wanted to, at a time when coaching wasn't a really popular thing, um, and if you wanted to work with people, you were going to become a counselor, a social worker, or a psychologist. And if you wanted to be a psychologist, then you, in most states, have to have a master's or a PhD and that there's um, a, an actual licensing body. And so it's a highly regulated field. And there is a high degree of expertise. So a lot of training, blah, blah, blah. And I moved to England in 1990, where you could just put up a sign that says, I'm a psychologist. Correct. Yeah. And that was the case yeah. in Canada for a while, too. Right. <laughs> And um, I don't remember what year it was that I had to register with the, health with the Healthcare and Professions Council. But now we're sort of regulated. We are regulated, but we're regulated by a body that regulates acupuncturists, massage therapists, and da, 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 right? It's not its own thing, right? Yeah. So 
make of that what you may. Also in the United Kingdom, we have a separate profession for counselors and a separate profession for psychotherapists. And psychotherapy, you know, in, in America, psychologists become psychotherapists. That's part of psychology, but not here. So it, it, it's, it is murky and it does depend on where you are. I should also say that I actually did get accredited as a coach. I have some feelings about when people do no training that will teach them how to work face-to-face -face with someone, how to listen without judgment, how to be present with a client. And there are, and there, and coaching is a very wide field. So I've met people who are coaches because of their life experience. And that's what they're there doing. And that's all they've done. They have no training in any kind of counseling techniques or listening or anything. They do, and they charge a lot of money with no training at all, except their own life experience. Now, yes, you can use your life experience. I certainly use mine. But I have a wide variety of other people's experience to pull from. And that's because I have objective training in a lot of things. I had a lot of supervised hours working with people, both as a coach and as a therapist. And now I've worked up for, for it's 33 years working face-to-face -face with people. So I've had a lot of other people's experiences to garner from as well. It's very different than saying, well, I'm self-taught and I'm, and so I do have issues with that, particularly because you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. So I, when, when people come to me and say they want mentoring and coaching, I want them to go to an actual training program. If I mentor them, one of the things I teach them is how to, is how to know when to refer. What kind of issues can't you deal with? You can't coach somebody out of this. You know, you need to go and you need to make sure this professional deals with this. And it's not always a psychologist. It might be something else. I mean, there are nutrition coaches who insist they can coach, you know, that, that your diet is going to fix any physical problem you have and, and don't think that, that there's ever any use for Western medicine. That's dangerous. You have to know what's there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's my concern too, is from the perspective of the consumer who's not made aware of regulating bodies when it comes to psychologists and then life coaches, relationship coaches, intimacy coaches, all the various kinds of coaches, it makes it very difficult from a consumer's perspective to be able to parse out the experts from the self-proclaimed experts. And what I mean by that is people who actually have some sort of training to be able to deal with humans that have experienced trauma or that genuinely need some form of therapeutic help and whether or not they're equipped to be able to deliver that help responsibly without doing further damage. And unfortunately, there are actually a lot of people who just don't have the training. Um, some of them are just naive. Most of the ones I've met were not malicious, right? They weren't scam artists. They weren't, yeah. you know, there are, there are obviously people like that in every profession. But most of the people that I meet that do damage are just people that are, um, I guess, far too narcissistic. And they think that if what they experienced and they did to get over it, it's one size fits all. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's to say also that psychologists can be shitty at their job, even, even though they're accredited, but at least they have a regulating body holding them responsible for any sort of misconduct or damage that they can do. And particularly in the area of sex and relationships, psychologists 
you know, there are lots of holes in training. Like I didn't get most of my sex and intimacy training in psychology. You know, I had to pick up courses and grab courses and go through things externally to get that because many schools still don't teach much. And so, and it, you know, there are many um, universities that are still basically only teaching heterosexuality and homosexuality and that's it. That's the, the whole area yeah. of sexuality, right? Nobody yep. else exists. So yeah, you know, it, it's just because somebody has letters after their name does not mean that they know what they're doing. And I always say this to, to consumers, interview your people. And if your gut tells you this doesn't feel right, find someone else. There's tons of people out there. Trust your gut. Don't, you know, if you feel massively uncomfortable and you're not sure if this person has any idea what they're talking about, vote with your feet. Well, then let's go back a little bit to your therapy with trauma patients. Now, I'm curious what the process is like, maybe from the perspective of the client going through the process of overcoming something like sexual trauma. It's intense because you have to be, in order to go through it, you're in contact with the feelings. You're often in contact with the memories. But what I should say is that frequently people who are traumatized in this way are having flashbacks or having intrusive thoughts. Um, and so the material is there anyway. They're getting triggered in various situations. So as a therapist, I hate to say this, but I'm gonna deliberately trigger you. I'm telling you that's what we're gonna do. I'm asking you to go back there. But it's in a structured environment. I do not, um, when I treat trauma, I do not have a, a fixed session time. I have a defined set of things I'm looking for to know that something has either completely diffused or diffused enough for somebody to feel okay leaving a session. So I don't do a, oh my God, it's 10 minutes to the hour. I don't care if you're in floods of tears, your anxiety's up to here, now we need to close. I don't work that way. But that's only because I'm able to operationalize what to me is finished, yeah? Um, so your session might be 30 minutes with me and you'll pay for 30 minutes. You won't pay for the two hours I set aside for you because not very many people go over two hours in one session. Sometimes it happens and I'll stick there with you. And my clients know that if it's them, I'll go with them. So I, I do trauma people on a day and I don't do anything else when I'm doing trauma people on that day in case I have to go over and move people later. Um, so you know what to expect. I'll educate you on what to expect. I'll educate you on the processes that I'm gonna use, the things I'm gonna ask you to do, how important it is you tell me whatever comes to mind, even if it's ridiculous. Because one of the things that tells you that somebody is no longer in a trauma is they'll start to notice things in the room. They'll notice their stomach, stomach rumbling. They'll notice something you're wearing. So that's a cue to me that either where it's a good time to end or we're close to an end. And so if somebody doesn't tell me that because they're, they'll think I'll be upset, then I obviously miss that cue. So, you know, I'm very particular and I'm very directive in terms of the structure of the session to keep that safety but no judgment about where you go, what you say, what comes out of your mouth at all. Now with the climate right now, such as it is, what do you think that the public could learn from your experience having dealt with 
first of all, your own personal trauma, overcoming that, and then having had so many patients who've experienced trauma, what do you think the lay public should try to understand when it comes to hearing about cases in the news of sexual assault, of predators being caught? There was a case recently in Toronto, a very famous photographer accused of sexual misconduct with several models that he was shooting. And there's obviously the stance that says, believe the victims. Now, how do we forward uh, an ethically responsible understanding to the lay public and what's the message that should be should be understood it's a really difficult one you know it is true that there's been a lot of sexual misconduct that's gone on in many professions that's never reported and the victims were never believed it is also true that um there have been a lot of false allegations and it's very difficult to parse. What I tell people is you need to take responsibility for your response to an experience, not for being in the experience, right? And so there are, there is a difference between making a bad decision. And I'll say this as somebody who survived, you know, an assault that, that damn near killed me multiple assaults that damn near killed me and have also made bad, had bad sexual judgment, right? Sometimes we need to step back and see whether this was a bad choice that we made. Like we should have said no, we know we should have said no and we didn't say no. And now we feel bad about it or whether this is something that where somebody coerced us or somebody assaulted us. And we're not, you know, when you say that everybody's like, you're blaming the victim. No, I'm not because it's, unhelpful to put the responsibility for everything outside of yourself because that means you're never going to have any control so what i'm there hearing are some right... things that are right out of our control and there are other things where we can look at our own behavior and modify it and take back some control does that make sense to you absolutely uh, what i'm hearing is that there are some aspects of the experience that one can try to regain control over and in that there could be an empowering way to push through the trauma Absolutely. Whereas um, if the, the trauma is entirely somebody else's responsibility, namely the perpetrator, then you're, you're kind of in a sense of, of helplessness to try to get out. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's look, what, what happened to me was entirely this guy's fault, right? He made a decision to behave the way he behaved. Yeah. I had a little bell inside me and all of us have this, um, Gavin DeBecker, wrote the gift of fear a million years ago it's a wonderful book and it talks about remembering that fear physiologically has a purpose and that in modern life many of us have desensitized to that because of social convention and i can't tell you the number of women who will agree with me when i say this you know you know the guy that you meet and you feel right off there's something not right but your mother told you you need to give people a chance so you override that stuff that says this isn't a good situation and you give the person a chance and they take advantage of you or they assault you or something like that. So that's what I'm talking about. It's figuring that out. So I don't blame myself for ending up a prisoner for five days and being raped. I blame myself for when I first met him before the good consensual stuff, when we first met inside, something said, this isn't what it appears to be. And I talked myself right out of that. And so one of the biggest things that I learned how to do from this, and I teach this 
as I teach it as a course, I call it risk assessment in relationships, is how to get back in touch with those senses and interpret them so that you're not over-interpreting so that you never want to go near anyone, but you're not under-interpreting. You're not putting yourself in dangerous situations because of not listening to what's going on inside you. And, you know, I've spoken with a lot of people who were um, sexually taken advantage of at work who will say, yeah, I had an idea, but I kind of talked myself out of it. I wasn't willing to say anything. I went along with it. Yes, that person shouldn't behave coercively, but also you're an adult and you went along with it. Why did you go along with it? What stopped you from listening to yourself? Right. And uncovering that could also uncover a lot about what one can personally work on in order to be more assertive sexually and create boundaries that are healthy for themselves. I wonder though, if that feeling, that response fear can ever be wrong. Yeah, it can. And that's why I said one of the things I like to, one of the things I work with people on is making sure it's not too sensitive. Right. So it's in understanding it. It's in, it's in making an, uh, a commitment to understand and better respond to that alarm. Yeah, yeah no, because, okay, so um, there's a statistic that's relatively old now, but there had been a bunch of research done that found that about 25% of uh, people who were um, sexually assaulted in childhood or who experienced poor sexual boundaries growing up were um, assaulted, sexually assaulted in adulthood or raped. And um, I was giving a talk and I came out with this statistic and I said, and I know why this is because I do. And I said, one of the things that people who have experienced sexual abuse or poor boundaries in childhood have is poor boundaries. And people who are rapists and predators, they're predators. And as animal predators do, they look for the easiest target. Oh yeah. And if you have poor boundaries, it's like having a sign on your head that says, I'm an easier target. Well, the audience went nuts. You're blaming the victim. I said, no, I'm not. I'm pointing out something that is a result of surviving a trauma that if you don't do something about is going to put you in harm's way in the future. So it's, some of it's about boundaries. So if you have had experiences like that in childhood, you can either have poor boundaries or go the other way. And then, you know, you're afeard of everything. So, I mean, it's fair to say that because of your personal experiences and the types of patients that you deal with, the type of advice and help that you can offer is centered around the victims. Therefore, what you're trying to push is the best possible methods for victims to be able to get through trauma to help themselves and to better prepare for the future. So it's not in a sense that you're blaming the victims, it's that that is your work to do with the victims. I don't and this want them is... to be victims anymore. Correct. So it, you're not dealing with the perps. You're not dealing with that side of things. So it's not, not as though anymore. you're saying, yeah, it's not as though you're saying, hey, you know, they don't have responsibility or work to do. They have the most responsibility Absolutely. and the most work to do, but you are focusing on the victims because those are your patients and you have experience in being able to walk them through certain parts of their trauma? And, uh, yes, but not entirely. I mean, I've worked with a lot of people who have perpetrated things. And actually, sometimes the most poignant trauma work that you can do is with somebody who's done something that they're, they know they feel horrible about and they know is horribly wrong. So I did a lot of work with veterans and um, who have killed people who have done things that they have not been <laughs> proud of. And actually, the things they were the victim of 
were the, the easy things to deal with, the stuff that they did themselves were the harder things. And so I've ended up working with people who wouldn't normally have seen themselves as a sexual perpetrator, but then, you know, when they looked at things in the light of more information about coercion and things like that, and thought back on their experiences have come in and said, wow, you know, I'm really, I'm having nightmares about what I did to blah, 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 some years ago. And so um, it's, it's a different, it's a different direction to be working on. Yeah. But it's equally as valid. And you have to be equally as non-judgmental when you're working with with somebody who's perpetrated. Because then, I mean, the, then the argument would be that now you're sympathizing with the perpetrator. Yeah, right? absolutely not. No, right? I'm, I'm yeah. basically following the line of reasoning. So yeah. the people who would say you're blaming the victim when you're when you're trying to help by empowering their uh, ability to to take back control might be the same people that say you know you're you're sympathizing with the perpetrator by helping them understand what they did and come to terms with that. Well, and because it comes from the idea that, that if somebody perpetrates that they're a bad person and they're always going to be a bad person and they're always going to perpetrate. And yes, there is, a, there is a section of the population who are psychopathic, who have no empathy, who perpetrate, and that's all they're going to do. And I'm not going to work with them. Um, I did start my career out working in prison and I, and I have met these people and I am fascinated by them and I've assessed them and I've done other things but I don't do therapy with them because you don't do therapy with them. They mess with you bad. They're, they're interesting souls. But um, and there's an argument that they don't have those, but there it is. Um, but that's a very small portion. The yeah. vast majority of people who perpetrate are not necessarily habitual perpetrators. And so um, there are lots of people that you can do work with and you can teach them in addition to working with them when they realize they've done wrong on dealing with the trauma of that, you can teach them appropriate consent and appropriate boundaries and, and help them change their attitudes about sex and women and men because people perpetrate against men. And so stop objectifying people unless they've consented to be objectified, you know? So there is a lot you can do with that, but yeah, if you, if you try to work with that, people go nuts as well. It's just like there was a program that was being run to work with domestic couples who are experiencing domestic violence in Oregon, I think. It was either Oregon or Washington. This was a couple of years back. And they went through hell trying to get funding for this program because the rule of thumb is you don't work with them together. But these were people who wanted to stay in relationships with each other. There, it was a great program. And the therapists who, were, who created it were really good, but they had real trouble getting funding for it because, oh my God, no, you can't put them together because he will, you know, because it was usually the man who was the perpetrator. He will bamboozle her again. He will, right? As though the therapist would have nothing to say if he was behaving in a, man, in a controlling manner or in, in, a, in an abusive manner. It was just like, of course, she'll be taken in by his stuff again and then she'll just get abused again. I mean, I think what, what you're saying here is that it's unhelpful to classify victims as entirely helpless and perpetrators as entirely malicious because then it just seems like there's no work to be done and that's also like the the sort of absolute stance of cancel culture versus the more sort of productive restorative justice initiatives in which that's case, so funny that's where i was going to go that's exactly yeah. <laughs> where i was going and the reason is, is because this is something i've noticed in the last three years is that we have gotten more and more and more black and white and people are not able to see nuance anymore. 
and conversations have become less and less nuanced. So, oh, we're going to go look at what, what, I mean, Winston Churchill was a great example. Winston Churchill was a racist. He did nothing right. Yes, Winston Churchill was a racist. Winston Churchill was also the reason that the Brits got involved in the Second World War. Winston Churchill also did some amazing things. Does that mean that every single thing that he's ever done that's good is canceled by his attitude? Well, apparently now it does, right? You know, he was also an anti-Semite, but he helped save Jews, right? You know, so it's, it's, it's problematic for me that there's no nuance in conversation anymore because the world isn't black and white. 99% of what we're going to deal with in daily life is ambivalence. It's nuanced. Yeah, it's layered. And I think a lot of people are just uncomfortable with having that cognitive dissonance in being undecidable on a topic or a subject or another human being because it, it feels much safer and much better to be concrete and say, this person is evil, that person is good. And now that we're seeing the layers of a variety of humans, it becomes much harder to, to have those kinds of perspectives, right? You take Michael Jackson, for example, he was the king of pop, but he was also arguably a pedophile. Mm -hmm. And at this point, his music still plays on the radio and it's had a huge cultural influence. And for me, it's also difficult to listen to that music and not picture his actions and not picture also growing up with that music. So there is this nexus of, of difficulty with that cognitive dissonance, but I think it's an important thing for us to try to sit with as we assess humanity, especially if we want to have something like restorative justice initiatives, because that would be the more helpful way forward to try to reframe and to teach and to help people unlearn toxic behaviors. Otherwise, there is no real way out. Yeah, and you know what the re reality is, is that the vast majority of people, it, one of the, I should say that one of the marks of, of actually emotionally healthy adulthood is being able to sit with ambivalence and sit with cognitive dissonance. That is the mark of a healthy adult. And unfortunately, the vast majority of the population never gets there now. And I, there are a whole bunch of things that I think are reasons for that. Culturally, we need the restorative justice. But on an individual level, most of us, the people in our lives are not going to be able to be categorized into good and evil. And if we're a person who has to do that, our relationships will be full of drama, upset, and, and pain, and not a lot of the good stuff because people aren't like that. People do things that are thoughtless. And we need a way to bring them back. I, I did a program um, on my podcast with Kitty Stryker, who does a lot on consent. And Kitty was talking about the fact that in the King community right now, or at the time, a lot of what was happening was, you know, you violate consent and we kick you out of the community. And she was like, there needs to be ways to rehabilitate people back into the community. And she made the point that all of us have violated consent at some point or another. I mean, have you ever hugged somebody that you didn't ask if it was okay and realized as you were hugging them that they really didn't want to be touched? That's right. a consent violation. Yep. Hopefully this sense of polarization that we're experiencing now, which I, I think is also obviously due to a lot of what's going on in the world in terms of you know political upheavals and COVID and the resurgence of Black Lives Matters movement. I think that 
right now we're just in, in really high tension. So yeah. those, those nuances tend to disappear in times like this, but hopefully with some initiatives towards restorative justice, we can come through. Now, I just want to ask a little bit about some of the niche stuff that you do. It does say in your bio that you offer some sort of services for niche clients like sex workers, like I read professional submissives. Now I've heard of pro doms, but I've not heard of professional submissives. What you're thinking of is I was on um, a channel five in the UK TV show. There's a, a running TV show called the sex business. And I was on the episode that dealt with professional submissives. There are in fact people who hire out as submissives. It, it was called the set. It was called spank me harder was the episode. Um, and I was being asked about, in fact, of whether some of uh, these women were at risk of abuse and things like that. And I find it fascinating. We don't ask that with men. There was an episode, you know, there's an episode with a man going to a dominatrix and, and um, how graphic can I be? Can I be quite graphic? I'm Go about for it. it. Go for right? it. And they were talking, in the episode, there was ball nailing. Now, for those of you who don't know, there are men who have their scrotums nailed to things. Yes, actual nails through the scrotum. Sounds excruciating to me. There are men who like this. Okay. Yep, and yep. there was no concern <laughs> about whether that guy was at risk of abuse, right? This is, this is CBT, the yeah. other CBT. Yeah, this is the other CBT, but this is extreme CBT. I mean, yeah, right? Yeah. But there was absolutely no worry that the guy was being abused. But the worry was that the professional woman was being abused, right? Because she was being a submissive and somebody was going to beat her. I was fascinated by that, be that as it may. Yeah, I do work with sex workers. I work with all kinds of sex workers. I do a lot of trauma work with sex workers. I work with sex workers to help them deal with the difference between client and relationship and to deal with their relationships because they have a particular set of issues when they go to have relationships often. This sounds extremely fascinating, the work that you've done with, uh, with sex workers and, and pro-subs, which is a, a curious thing that exists. So then the last thing I want to ask you is what do you think we need for a more sex positive future? Oh my God, we need sex education that is um, normalized. And just like you might educate somebody on their diet or on living healthy or um, on going to the doctor to make sure that you get your, you know, your jabs and you make sure that you, um, get checked out if you're feeling unwell and all these things, right? We need sex to be integrated back into society. Um, and we need pleasure to be something that people understand that they have a right to and that it's something that we should, you know, we get pleasure from all sorts of other things. We should understand that we're also built for pleasure. That's part of it. Um, and our sex education needs to be far more, far longer. It should start at a young age and it's age, age appropriate. It needs to include things like the variety of identities that are out there so that people don't feel like so many people like I did and so many other people feel like they're completely othered. Thankfully, I did not feel suicidal as a result of feeling othered, but uh, there are plenty of people who do. And particularly trans people, when they don't see themselves reflected anywhere, can become incredibly suicidal. So, you know, those sorts of things need to be, and it needs to be ongoing. These conversations need to be had in public. You know, I always say I want to take sex from the shadows to the light. 
there should not be any shame around this. It's a, it's a part of life. It's a natural part of life. It's actually a really good part of life. And, you know, I heard something a while back that, you know, are the sex positive communities now putting pressure on people who don't want to have sex? What about all the asexual people? And I was like, they're part of our community. (laughs) Right. I know. And I was like, excuse me. So here's the thing. Just because you're part of a sex positive community doesn't mean that you're all having sex all the time. It just means that you're allowed to be who you are sexually and your gender and all of that. And it's all inclusive, including people who choose to be celibate, including people who are asexual or aromantic or all the other amazing number of identities that have now exist. Right? Absolutely. That's what I think we need to do. We need to make this normal. We need to stop making it something that's furtive and dirty. And that is actually going to lower the incidence of, of sexual assault as well. Um, and of, of the kind of sex and, and kind of like sexual bad behavior in offices and those sorts of things, because it's no longer a part of dirty thing. You can't get away with it when people understand consent and they understand what sex positivity looks like, then they call things like that out far earlier. I absolutely agree. And I, I do hope that, you know, this podcast, your work, your podcast as, as well can gain visibility for a lot of those unheard voices in the sex positive communities, typically the marginalized folks, so that there's less incidence of assault, shame, guilt, and people feeling like they don't have an identity. Then the final thing is that I ask all my guests is if you have a sexy, wild, outrageous, fun story to share. Oh my, I think maybe I'll, um, share, well, I don't know that it's outrageous. I mean, I can't think of the most, if I gave you the most outrageous, it's, it, it's quite difficult to think of. Um, Whatever story you got that, that you'd like to share. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story about manifestation. So when I was writing my, my erotic memoir, um, I was having trouble getting through it. And I realized that I had not gone back to um, Boston, which was the place where I experienced the sexual assault, and that I hadn't actually retraced my steps there. So I decided to do that. And I came back from that trip and I realized that I really wanted some balance. Now, um, I said I'm in two power exchange relationships. The one that with my husband, it is a 24-7 power exchange. I should be clear, I'm the submissive in all of these, right? (laughs) Um, But Um, He's not a very structured dominant. Now, you know, dominants come in many flavors, but there are two basic flavors. Some are micromanagers. They want control over loads of stuff that you do, say, right? Behaviors, what you wear, what you eat. And then there are the ones who are not micromanagers. They want you to act with an understanding of, of what they would like, but they don't want to be in on saying you should wear that piece of clothing or this piece of jewelry or you know, don't wear any pants today or things like that. Okay. Two different types. And I had been saying for years that I absolutely do not want to be micromanaged because when I was captive for five days, I was micromanaged. Right. (laughs) So I was like, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. So I came back from my trip and I, I said to my husband, actually, I need a lot more structure. So I was looking. So he's like, he gave me permission to go on the dating apps and start looking. And I had an awful experience with that was getting nowhere. There was a man that I had met at a professional conference. He's another therapist. And I'd met him March, I guess, 2019. And there was a spark there, but it was like, 
both of us were pulled to the teeth of work and this, that, and the other, and so nothing came of it. And then we found ourselves in a peer group together, and the spark was still there, and I developed an absolutely mad crush on him. And then my book came out, and so I did a launch, and he signed up for the launch. So I turned to my husband, who would, my husband came to the launch with me, but before the launch, I said, oh my God, he signed up for the launch, and I'm, I have a mad crush on him, and I'm going to do an erotic reading at this launch. And I don't, I don't even know if he's into me. I don't think he's into me, right? And we're in the middle of this Zoom meeting because, of course, COVID. So there's like 20 people on the screen, and I'm doing this reading. And I'm reading, I got challenged to read the most sensitive story. So my kind of, the fantasy that I find most difficult to talk about on this thing by Midori. And if you don't know who Midori is, Midori is like, Dan Savage calls her the supernova of kink. She's amazing. So Midori said, oh, you should read the one that's, you know, most difficult or you should read that out loud. I was asked the question, what was most difficult by another leading light. But so there I was and I got set up and I'm reading this and there's this guy that I think is really hot and I'm not sure is into, into me. And I get like the first three paragraphs of this and in the chat box, just privately to me, it's like, I got delicious. Now, as you can see, I'm light skinned. You can see it now. Look at how red I am, right? <laughs> so I flushed completely. And my husband sitting next to me, like, see, I told you he was into you. And I was just like, oh my God, I lost my place in the story. I had to start again. <laughs> and he messed with me the whole night. And that's my second partner now. So Aww, that's yeah. such a sweet story. It was great. I mean, it was just, but yeah, this is like, this is, they call me red in a lot of places, and it's not because of my hair. It's this, it's the blush. <laughs> All right. Well, then before I let you go, this is your chance to shout out all the places that you want to be found. Okay. So um, if you are on FetLife, at the moment, I don't have a professional profile there. I just have a personal one, but there will be one for Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee by the time this airs. So you can find me on FetLife there if you want to contact me there. You can find me on Facebook and Lori Beth Bisbee. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Bisbee. It's B-I-S-B-E-Y. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, on Patreon, it's Lori Beth Bisbee. And that's where I ask people if they want to support both my podcasts. One of them is Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee's Erotic Library. So I read my erotica. I read with permission, other people's erotica, and I get authors on to read their own, and it's a lot of fun. And if you actually become a patron, you get access to interviews and swag and all sorts of stuff. But that's great. That's a weekly one. If you're interested in the A to Z of sex, you can do bit.ly forward slash A to Z of sex radio, and that will take you to the podcast. That happens every week. Website is the A to Z of sex.com or drlorybethbisbee.com. Um, or if you're interested in my books or my writing, drlorybethbisbee.press. All of those are really easy to find. If you put my name in, you'll find one of them. Um, and those are the main places to find me. Do reach out. Uh, I answer emails really quickly. There are phone numbers, but I find phone numbers harder um, because of time zones. So emails, if you email me, you're likely to get a really, really quick response. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've had a blast. This has been great. You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty to stimulate your thinking.